Hi, friends. Let's go ahead and get started this morning. Let me pray for us and we'll begin. Father in heaven, we're thankful for um, this new day. We're thankful for um, your love for us. And we pray, um, Father, for um, all those um, who are in the cold today. We pray that you'd protect them and keep them safe and warm. We pray for our congregation in general, Lord, that you would protect us um, through this uh, winter freeze. And we ask that you would still allow us this morning, Father, to gather um, here in about an hour to worship you. And um, pray that um, you would bless our worship, Lord, that you would um, enliven it by your Holy Spirit. We ask now that you would draw near to us and grant us wisdom as we um, continue to consider matters of your word and um, of theological teaching of our church. We pray that you grant us um, your grace in this. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, friends, um, we are today um, continuing our series in the Westminster Confession of Faith. We're in chapter 8 today. Um, which is entitled, Of Christ the Mediator. Um, we've worked our way through the first couple sections of this, um, of this uh, paragraph or this chapter um, in the confession. And um, at the front of your page, top of your page, your handout, um, you'll see paragraph four, which we looked at last week. Um, I'm going to, if we have time, I want to walk through some of the larger catechism questions um, that correspond to that That uh, paragraph because I think they're really helpful. Um, I will read this um, paragraph and then we'll move on to the back page and begin to look at paragraphs five uh, through uh, eight and then come back to um, uh, to four if there's time. Um, okay, let me um, start with this. So this whole chapter is on the work of Christ um, as our mediator. Of course, that language is drawn from uh, the scriptures in Hebrews where um, Jesus is identified as the mediator of the new covenant and the better covenant um, for us on our behalf. And Hebrews, of course, really emphasizes his work, his priestly work in that, um, in that regard, um, that he has made a new and living way for us um, to God, um, as Hebrews 10 puts it, um, into the presence of the Lord uh, through his flesh and um, through his um, living ascended body um, after his death and crucifixion, his death that was offered once, as Hebrew says, as a sacrifice for all, um, uh, is then um, presented to God in his living flesh um, as he is ascended to the Father's right hand and becomes um, a kind of bridge, a kind of connector uh, between um, humanity and those who are united to him and God himself. Um, and so that is the sort of picture that we're working with in this chapter of the work of Christ um, as his role as uh, mediator, um, the one who um, unites us to the living God. Um, and all of that is rooted, of course, in um, his incarnation, um, in his uh, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, um, as this paragraph uh, makes clear. Uh, this office, um, this medi mediatorial office, this office as mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it, endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died, was buried, and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption." 
On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which also he ascended into heaven, and there sitteth at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and the present tense is important there, right? Everything else is past, um, but this is present tense, uh, making intercession because he continues that work um, in himself um, even now, and shall return, so there's a future element to his mediatorial office as well, shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. Um, We looked at that chapter already last week, so I'm going to skip forward to um, over the larger catechism questions for the moment um, to the back page. Um, you'll see um, Roman numeral 5 there. This is the fifth paragraph in this chapter. Um, and we'll work through these remainder, remaining paragraphs in this chapter um, one by one. So this uh, paragraph begins, The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up unto God, has fully satisfied the justice of his Father, and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven, for all those whom the Father for him. A few comments about that um, paragraph. Um, Jesus, the divines want to show us um, um, part of what he's doing in his um, life on earth is, as we talked about last week, some perfectly fulfilling the law, um, filling the, fulfilling the law to its uttermost, um, achieving perfect and full righteousness, um, even as Adam ought to have done. Um, and so there's a positive element to what Jesus does for us. He doesn't simply um, die on the cross as a sacrifice. He also um, perfectly obeys um, the Father. So by his perfect obedience and his sacrifice of himself, um, so his death on our behalf, his substitutionary death um, in place of those of us who deserve death, um, by these two things, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up to God. Uh, And so again, you see that Trinitarian dynamic that we talked about last week that we saw in paragraph three um, in the Confession rightly brings this out, that the, that the Spirit is engaged fully in this work of redemption that is offered on our behalf, that he offers himself up through the Spirit to the Father, um, that the Father um, responds, um, as we see in this next clause, and so has fully satisfied the justice of his Father. Um, there's nothing um, that remains to be done in the work of Christ on our behalf, Um, It is finished, as he said on the cross, um, uh, is fully satisfied the justice of his Father. And that's important for us to latch on to and to see, um, so important for the living of the Christian life, because um, that means that when we confess our sin um, to God, um, we don't have to worry about whether um, there is something that is lacking in terms of God's forgiveness of us. Um, and the, the reason for that, the reason that there's no lack in God's forgiveness for us is not dependent in some way on some subjective um, uh, attitude of our heart. Um, it's not as though uh, we have to, quote unquote, be sorry enough um, or we, you know, we might miss some kind of bar that doesn't quite hit the, ma- the mark. No, the reason that God's justice is fully satisfied is because of the 
um, perfect and complete and full and final work of his son on our behalf that we, um, we, we lean upon, that we trust in um, when we confess our sin to God. And so we can be uh, fully confident in his forgiveness. Um, and so this work, um, by this work, Jesus has purchased not only reconciliation, um, which has to do with that idea of us being brought again near to God in relationship to him, um, overcoming the barrier that our sin creates uh, between us and God. So he's reconciled us to God, but he's also gone even more than that, right? He hasn't just given, gotten us back to the garden, so to speak. And I think sometimes this idea that this is what Jesus does, he just sort of gets us back to, to square one with God. No, what we believe is that Jesus has brought us all the way to the end, um, to the place where Adam would have gone if he had been obedient and not sinful in the first place. He has purchased for us um, not only reconciliation, not only getting back on square terms with God, but actually an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. He has obeyed as the righteous and perfect son, and so united to him, uh, we share in his uh, mature obedience and his mature righteousness, uh, which goes further even than Genesis 1 and 2, um, all the way to the end, um, to what God intended for humanity, an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven, um, an inheritance, as our Lord Jesus talks about, um, that is not um, threatened by rust or by moths or by thieves, um, but is laid up for us in heaven um, by himself and is completely secure um, in him. Uh, and then they add this clause at the end of that paragraph, for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. And so here um, the divines are um, focusing in on that doctrine that we describe as um, definite or um, uh, what's the word for particular atonement or definite atonement, um, the idea that, that uh, and, and essentially what that doctrine teaches is that um, Christ's death um, was um, certainly sufficient for the whole world. There's nothing lacking in what he did, um, but it is efficient, it is effective only for those whom God has um, called um, to himself, um, the, the, the ones who are, those who are chosen in Christ. All right, I'll stop there and see if there's any thoughts or discussion um, about this, this paragraph here. Anybody? Any comments or questions? Yes, sir. Jeremy.
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's certainly one of these chapters here or paragraphs here um, is going to talk about well, the next one, very next one. We can talk about the way in which all of this applies to the Old Testament saints as well. Any other thoughts or questions or comments about this? Amen. <laughs> That's right. Yes, sir. Yes, right. No, that's a great, that's well put, James. I think that's right, yeah. It does make sense. No, it does. I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's right, that there is a sense in which purgatory can make some logic, logical sense from a, human perspective um, but the logic of God is fulfilled in the gospel of his son and that is that yeah that grace and justice are not opposed to one another um, that God has actually both graciously given us his son but also his son has fully fulfilled um, God's justice or satisfied as the writers say here he satisfied God's justice with his um, life death and resurrection um, for us and there's, yeah, there's nothing that remains apart from um, uh, faith and perseverance. Um, and so certainly we would say, as we're going to talk in our sermon this morning, that there's a calling toward obedience and holiness, and we wouldn't want to not emphasize those things. Um, but certainly in terms of um, securing our salvation, securing the forgiveness of our sins, we aren't creating those things through our faithfulness or through our obedience. We're uh, participating in those things. We're, we're walking in union with Jesus, um, who is the way in to all of us, uh, to all of it, and the one who keeps us in, um, even as Paul talks about in Philippians. So no, I appreciate that, absolutely. Um, I think another, just to 
say one other thing. By his perfect obedience, um, um, the divine's right here and sacrifice of himself. I think one of the really important passages to think about in terms of the perfection of Christ's obedience is Hebrews 5, um, where it talks about the fact that um, that although he was the son, um, he was uh, made mature uh, through suffering, uh, or learned obedience through suffering, rather, that Jesus learned obedience through suffering, and after being made perfect, um, the writer to Hebrews says in Hebrews 5, um, he was designated um, as um, the uh, high priest after the order of Melchizedek and offers to salvation to all those who obey him. Um, and I, I think that's a really fascinating thing to think about, that our Lord actually matured in some way, um, that he actually grew into perfection uh, through um, the years of his life and through his obedience, through the things that he suffered. And what does that mean? I mean, Jesus was always sinless, of course, um, always innocent in that way. And yet there was a perfection of his life and of his maturity and of his obedience um, that took place um, so that at the right time, um, he offered himself as a sacrifice, having uh, fully um, demonstrated, fully fulfilled the vocation of humanity of Adam. And it's that perfection, that perfection, perfected life that is um, that we're that we're united into um, along with his death. That's something to remember. All right, paragraph six, although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices, wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman, which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, being yesterday and today the same and forever. Um, I don't know there's a ton to say about this paragraph. Of course, what the divines are emphasizing here is um, the fact that um, although many of the elect lived before the incarnation of our Lord, um, they were saved in just the same way that we were. Um, as previous um, chapters of the confession have stated, um, that they looked forward um, uh, by promises, types, and sacrifices um, to the one um, who is uh, the seed of the woman that bruises the serpent's head and this lamb that is slain uh, from the beginning of the world. And of course, that image is drawn from uh, Revelation, that picture of him being the lamb slain from the beginning of the foundations of the world. Um, and there is this kind of, you know, we move through space and time as human beings, and so the incarnation happened at a definite time and place in history, um, and yet in some way Christ's sacrifice is eternal um, um, and applies backwards as well as forwards in time. Is there anything to say about that? Any questions or comments about that paragraph there? It was fairly straightforward. Um, I will say this is important um, as we think about the relationship between the Old Testament and New Testament. Um, I think that there can sometimes be this impression that Old Testament saints were saved in some other way um, than we are. And, um, and if that is true, then of course we're going to interpret and apply the Old Testament in a very different way than if we believe what this chapter says. 
um, have holding this view and 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 affirming it um, allows us um, to rightly uh, understand and interpret the Old Testament as being Christian scripture, um, not pre-Christian scripture, um, but but actually God um, hasn't changed, um, that he is just as gracious in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament, and that there's not um, some change that takes place in God. And of course, the history of Christian interpretation has at times wrestled with that, has sought to read the Old Testament in different ways, um, ways other than fully Christian scripture. We want to avoid that. Um, paragraph seven, Christ in the work of mediation acteth according to both natures, that is his divine and human natures, uh, by each um, nature doing that which is proper to itself, yet by reason of the unity of the person, so two natures, one person, those two natures united, yet not confused, um, uh, you know, not divided from one another. Um, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in scripture attributed to the person denominated, or named, that is, by the other nature. And um, they give a few um, examples of this in the scripture. It might be helpful to just to see what they're, they're saying here. Um, in Acts 20, 28 is one of the proof texts for this paragraph. Read that real quick. Um, this comes in the last speech of Paul to the elders at Ephesus before he goes to Jerusalem. He tells them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Um, so what the divines are pointing out there is that um, way that the scriptures will speak where Paul is talking, he says, the church of God, which he, that is God, purchased with his own blood. Um, so obviously, uh, blood refers to Christ's human nature, um, not his divine nature, and yet um, the scriptures can speak in both ways simultaneously, essentially is what they're saying. Um, they, they can include speaking of God and also speaking of things like uh, shedding blood. Um, the example in 1 John uh, 3.16 um, is a similar one. The apostle writes, he says, By this we know love, that he, that is, he's been referring to God previously, talking about the children of God, those who are born of God. Um, By this we know love, that he, that is God, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Um, God, of course, does not die on the cross in any fundamental way, and yet the scriptures can speak of the human nature of Christ as though it applies um, to his whole person. Um, um, through that, we can view him through that lens as well as the other lens as well. I don't know if that makes sense. I'm not, go ahead. I honestly don't know why the divines felt like this was an essential paragraph to put in. I mean, they're working, you know, they don't talk about everything, obviously. A lot of things they don't address in the confessions. They choose to address this. So I, I honestly don't know the answer to that question, Jeremy. Um, insight on that, Lauren? Why the divines? Yeah. But, um, yeah, but that's that's simply what they're saying. Just they're acknowledging that the scriptures speak in different ways 
about the two natures of Christ. And sometimes, as they put it, um, because of the unity of the person, um, that which is proper to one nature, divine or human, is sometimes in Scripture, and particularly probably um, human to divine, uh, attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. Yes. Did you have a question, Jim? Right. Yeah, I wouldn't speak of I understand what you're saying. I would I would not want to speak of Christ in that way personally. Um and I think this the place where this is helpful for us is uh, the, the earlier in this same chapter, in chapter 8. So in paragraph 3, it says, The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Um, I mean, certainly there's paradox here, James. Um, and yet I... I think we need to be careful of this idea that Jesus was some kind of superhuman, right? Um, that just sort of walked through the earth and um, and just, you know, lifted his finger and things jumped out of the ground. Or you know what I mean? Like there was what the picture that we see in the scriptures is that the Son, the incarnate Son, is always fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit and thus upon his relationship with his Father. And so it, it, there is a, I mean, there's mystery here, but I would certainly not, I would certainly want to lean away from explaining various ways that the scripture speaks about Jesus's humanity and divinity in the gospels by, you know, sort of saying that sometimes he kind of assumed a divine nature and sometimes he leaned into his human nature. I don't, I'm not saying that's necessarily what the person you mentioned was meaning, but I would want to be careful about implying that, that he sort of went back and forth uh, between those two things. Um, in some way, he, he held on to them both, and certainly, um, you know, he, he maintained and ordered the whole universe um, according to his divine nature while he was a baby in the womb of his virgin mother. Um, and, I, you know, how does that work? I don't know entirely, uh, but he was fully human. Um, was fully human, and ac according to his human nature, was his knowledge was limited in the same ways that ours is. Um, he was human in that way. Um, he didn't go around, you know, telepathically reading everybody's minds, or you know what I mean. Like there are times when the Spirit gave him insight, and we see that um, in certain, you know, um, chapters in the Gospels, like when the paralytic is lowered through the roof, and and the he knows somehow the thoughts of the Pharisees that they are 
you know, assuming all sorts of terrible things about him because he told the man, your sins are forgiven. Um, and, um, but I don't think that means that Jesus was just walking around, you know, somehow aware of, you know, the inner thoughts of all of the people around him or something, according to his human nature, at least. So, um, he was fully human. Um, he was like us in that way. His body uh, was tired and he um, had the normal bodily functions of a human person. Um, he slept, he all the things. Um, yeah. Do you have a question? He got he got colds, I think, you know, viruses, you know, all that. Yeah. Right, yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, a human person, you know, uh, Mark tells us that he didn't eat or drink for 40 days. Obviously, there was something miraculous that was preserving his human life <laughs> during that period because no human being naturally can not eat or drink for 40 days. You might be able to not eat for 40 days, but you better be drinking a lot of water if you're doing that. Um, so, but the Spirit was sustaining him. Angels were ministering to him, um, we're told. Yeah, yeah, during that time he was he was not comfortable during those 40 days. <laughs> he he was hungry. Actually the gospels say that. That's part of why Satan comes and tempts him after 40 days is cuz he was very hungry. And understandably so. All right. Let me um look at this last paragraph here so we can complete the chapter and we can talk about anything you want after that. Chapter or paragraph eight here in the bottom of your back page. To all those for whom redemption. So these are all that the Father has given him, as we read earlier. He doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same. Um, so Christ, um, in his mediatorial role, this is the wonder of who Jesus is, not only has purchased for us, won our redemption, he also applies it to us and communicates it to us. And again, that word communicate, they're using it in a, you know, an archaic way um, to contrast to how we use the word communicate today. They're, they're saying he gives communion in that redemption. He makes us partakers of it, not just that he communicates it to us, he speaks about it, but he actually brings us in um, into that redemption. Um, he makes us partakers of it. How does he do that? He makes intercession for us at the Father's uh, right hand. Um, he is doing that even now. And revealing unto them in and by the word the mysteries of salvation. Uh, what this is saying is that in some sense, Christ himself will be present with us this morning um, in about an hour um, as the scripture is read in the assembly, um, as the scripture is preached um, in the assembly on the Lord's Day particularly, it is as though Christ himself were speaking um, to his people, um, that he is actually speaking through his word. He speaks, we believe, uh, through uh, rightfully um, ordained and called preachers of his word. Um, um, it is as though he himself is speaking to us. This is part of his mediatorial role. Um, it, it's one of his, you know, we would if we think about prophet, priest, and king. It's a prophetic role that he has, that he speaks in this way. 
reveals unto his elect in and by the word the mysteries of salvation. Um, he is talking to us in the scriptures, and particularly, our confession says, he talks to us in the scriptures um, through the preaching of the word um, on the Lord's Day in the assembly of God's people, effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey. So um, it's the, the worship that we do, the, the, the preaching, the reading of the word. Um, Christ is at work by his spirit persuading us to believe and obey and governing their hearts by his word and his spirit. So the word of his lips and the spirit which he gives us, um, he actually governs your heart. Uh, we believe that Christ is intima intimately involved um, with every act of believing and obeying that you participate in. You never believe or obey on your own. You do always in union with the Lord uh, Jesus. Um, he is with you um, in that way. I remember that promise that he gave to his disciples in Matthew 28, uh, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And he clearly did not mean that he was going to be with them in a literal physical sense because he immediately left them at that point. And in those sense, was always with them. He was with them by his spirit and by his word. And as he spoke through his word, as he dwelt with them by his spirit. And this is why we can say Jesus is with us. God is with us now. Not, you know, the incarnation is not just a past tense event, right? His name is Emmanuel, God with us. Um, but God with us is a present tense experience um, for his people. And he, that is manifested, that takes place in the Son. Uh, the Son is with us. Um, it is his uh, special calling to be with us, but he is with us now by his Holy Spirit. Um, and one day we will be with him in the flesh overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom. So Christ is our king who fights for us, who rules over us and our enemies, who defends us um, and um, subdues us to himself, um, as the shorter catechism puts it, in such manner and ways as are most consonant, uh, most fitting would be a, or a synonym there, to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation, his knowledge, his wisdom, um, his will. Um, Jesus is constant. I love this paragraph because it emphasizes the constant ongoing work of Jesus on our behalf um, so that he is not only in heaven at his Father's right hand, um, interceding for us, praying for us, um, applying uh, the benefits of his um, death for us. Um, he is also with us always speaking to us, governing us, um, persuading us to believe and obey, um, and fighting against our enemies, overcoming our enemies by his power and wisdom, um, which are the evil one, um, which are um, things like um, temptation and things like sin and death. Um, our Lord is always with us in those things. And that is true even in the grave, right? We believe that the bodies of believers um, who die uh, remain united to their Lord. Um, even in death itself, um, he is always with us. Any thoughts or questions or responses to that paragraph? Such a wonderful doctrine. Anybody? Anything to say?
Okay. Well, I would, um, we don't have time now, but I would um, commend to you these larger catechism questions that I've printed out on this handout, questions 46 to um, 56. Um, it, it really walks through um, um, the work of Christ on our behalf presently. Um, and there's so much there um, that's beautiful and wonderful. And, um, and maybe I'll spend a week just looking at these questions. I, I just think they're so fantastic in terms of the, um, the larger catechism is such a gift to the church. Um, if you're not familiar with it, I commend it to you. Um, they're, they're, but, you know, the confession of faith is sort of the divines working within a pretty limited sort of space. Um, they're trying to be concise. The larger catechism is where they give themselves a little breathing room and um, go into the, you know, the, the other things that they wanted to say um, about the work of Jesus and the church and our Christian life and all of those things. Um, and it's such a gift. I'll just emphasize one here as we close this morning. Um, question 55 on the back of the handout. This is one of my favorite of these questions in larger catechism about the work of Christ. How does Christ make intercession, the divines ask? And they answer, Christ makes intercession by his appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven. So in his human nature, in his human body, in his risen flesh, he appears continually, always, constantly before the Father in heaven. In the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth. Um, so he does so not just as, you know, sort of just a generic innocent man, um, but as a righteous man, as a man who lived um, as we have lived, who grew hungry, who was tired, um, who um, experienced temptation, who all the sorts of things that we um, experience in this world, yet without sin. Um, he knew all of that. He knew loneliness. He knew disappointment. Um, he knew, um, uh, um, and and he appears before the Father on our behalf as that kind of man, not only someone who experienced all those things, but someone who overcame all those things, who experienced them and yet did not sin and offered himself up in death, fully trusting the Father, risen from the dead, glorified. Um, by God, having gone before us into and out of the grave, um, declaring his will to have it applied to all believers. This speaks to um, um, the way that he speaks through his word, right? That he is, he, is making he is making intercession for us in the sense that he is speaking to us as well. His mediatorial work is towards the Father, but also towards us. Answering all accusations against them. Um, and I, I love that question um, or that part of the answer to the question that one of the things that Christ does is he defends us from accusations um, and where do accusations against us come from they come from the evil one right they come from others um, and this happens all the time um, you people are Christian people are slandered and accused of all sorts of things that they never did and the final place they come from is our own hearts right our own hearts seek to condemn us in some ways that's maybe the most powerful um, voice in accusation but Christ actually defends his people um, is defending now his people um, um, against every accusation that is brought against them um, 
from the evil one, from the world, and even from our own flesh, our own hearts within us. And procuring for them quiet of conscience. Um, to me, that just goes back to Psalm 131, which we looked at in November. Um, I've calmed and quieted my soul before you, says the psalmist to the Lord. And it's important to see that we do that not in ourselves, but in union with Jesus, who does it for us, that he's constantly quieting us, and that he's saying to our hearts, be still, um, even as he stilled the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and that he is procuring for us quiet conscience. And that procuring, it's important to see, is not simply a, a past tense verb, right? He hasn't simply procured this for us. He is doing it now, and he is is applying that to our hearts, the quiet of conscience. Um, a quiet confidence before God um, is uh, part of the work of Christ um, that he gives to us. It's a share in his own confidence before the Father. Notwithstanding, so you might say, well, what about, you know, all the things that I experience that don't speak to those things, right? Notwithstanding daily failings, um, he gives us access with boldness to the throne of grace. Um, So even in light of our weakness and our sin, he is doing this, and he in his mediatorial work, his intercession work at the right hand of the Father, um, gives us acceptance before God of our persons and our services. So what the divines are saying here is that your life, um, as you live in repentance and faith, as you Um, seek to obey God, even though that obedience is always um, less than perfect, it is accepted by your Father that he is actually pleased with it, um, that he is actually pleased with your life. And you look at your life, perhaps, and wonder, how can God be pleased with this? It's such a mess. Um, There's so many things that are out of whack, um, that are not fully congruent. And the, the answer is that he's pleased with us in union with our Lord. That Jesus, part of, and I think this is fascinating, that part of Jesus' active work on our behalf is to make our imperfect lives, um, lives, our imperfect persons, pleasing and acceptable to God, um, so that God actually delights in us, um, even in the midst of our imperfections. And that is something that Jesus is doing for you right now. Um, it's part of why at the end of our service we offer our tithes and offerings and ourselves to the Father. Um, we give our tithes and offerings of a, as a sort of um, deposit on who we are um, and what we've done that week, right? Um, it's a way of saying, I give this to you, God, and God is actually pleased um, by us. He's actually delights in our work, in our labor, in our striving towards righteousness. And, it, you know, in some ways it's like what parents are towards their children when they're good and faithful parents, right? Even your children's less than perfect activities and behavior is pleasing to you because you can see the growth, you can see the change over the years. So it's like that, but it's even better than that in some way. Um, But it certainly is at least like that in the way that God is pleased with us in Christ. Um, I'm going to give Paul a few minutes to work on a hymn, but if we can have a a quick question or two or comment. Yes, sir. Amen. That's a good point.
Yeah, that's that's well put, James. Self-deprecation is actually a sin that we need to repent of. It is. It is. It is. It's a way of not believing what God says is true. Yeah, Lewis puts it really well in his essay, Weight of Glory. I quoted from it last week in my sermon. um, To be not merely pitied, but to actually be an ingredient um, in the divine happiness. um, To be delighted in as a father, um, as a painter delights in his work, or as a father delights in his son. Um, This is the weight of glory, Lewis says. And I do think that that's a a huge transition for us in terms of our standing with God to to move into that place where we feel that burden, that weight of glory um, that is actually given to us in Christ. All right, Paul, I'm going to stop there and give you a few minutes to help us prepare for worship here. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this um, teaching of the Westminster Standards. Thank you for um, these uh, glories of the work of Christ on our behalf, and not merely in the past, but even now and into the future. Help us, Father, to set our hearts upon him. Um, who gives us all things. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.